T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. All three engines up and burning. 2, 1, 0, and liftoff. So in this comparison with rocket science and leadership, we have the idea in our heads that we're on this Earth in this easy-to-travel orbit where it doesn't take an effort on our part because the Earth spins on its own and we're on that Earth. This is pioneering we're talking about, and of course the space pioneers were called that because they're leading the way into a new orbit. We're saying, well, I don't want to get on that. I don't want to get into that rocket and take that chance. It might blow up, which sadly to say it has on a, a couple of occasions. So why take the chance? Back to our comparison to learning. It's impossible to learn anything new unless we make an effort, which means we load the energy of our being with fuel. And the fuel is meaning. We have to believe it's meaningful for us to make the effort to try something new, that we're strong enough to try that. You know, again, these comparisons, you've got the pioneers. The pioneers are out there and they're taking chances we don't want to take. So we watch those pioneers from afar and we're hoping they succeed, but we want them to take the risks for us. Some of them go out there and they find something new and they call out to us and they say, okay, it's safe to come now. And that early group that goes forward, the early adapters, the early settlers, they go in, they begin to set up towns and build in areas where there has not been a town before. We call that progress. In any case, it's a new place and sometimes it's a much better place because the pioneers carved the way for us through the forest. So let's go ahead and think about that with leadership. We're calling upon you to try a new leadership approach. What is that leadership approach? It goes like this. So imagine for a moment that the area where you lead is a community, whether it's an entire hospital or hospice or some part of that. You are the leader. You survey your area. If it's a village, you may be asking some questions. How can we improve the roads? Uh, how can we improve the way snow removal occurs? Something as simple as that. And you can say, well, you know, we can get more trucks. We can do this. We can do that. Let's say the problem is more fundamental. The city is losing its energy. Uh, plants are moving away. The source of income, as it was true in Lordstown, Ohio, General Motors is pulling up. What are we going to do? If you're the mayor, you know one thing. You can't do things the way they've always been done. Now, I want to make a more blunt, direct comparison to where you are. If the mayor looks at Lordstown and says, okay, we had 5,000 people here. Uh, we don't have any plant. We'll just let things go and we'll be fine at a town of 500 people. And it's not my job to take care of you know those folks that have lost their job, that's up to them. And this community can go ahead and shrink, that's fine with me. I'm not gonna do anything because I know how to do this job. What I do is I come in every morning, I turn on the lights and hey, the lights are still coming on. It looks to me like things are working. So if you do that, your city gradually dies. If you're in a situation like that, you watch your town die and you don't do anything about it, like the person who you know, is on the sinking ship and they're looking around saying, well, I guess it's time for me to die anyway. I'll just stand here on the ship, let it go down, so what? You may be overseeing a community of colleagues where care is being poorly delivered. You may be in a setting where you're thinking to yourself, I 
I guess I got a job here, but I would not want my mother to be cared for by my team. Or maybe you're going to be easy on yourself and say, yeah, I got some people on my team that aren't that great, but generally we're pretty good. Oh, hold it right there. You want your mom to be admitted to be cared for in a place that's just pretty good? Whose responsibility is it to improve team performance? That rests on your shoulders because culture determines behavior and leaders, that's you, determine culture. The biggest determinant of staff, employee, partner energy is how they feel about the leader. Is the leader inspiring and energizing? Is that leader giving them enough of a sense of purpose and reinforcement so that they want to find the energy to break out of the orbit and try other approaches? Now, it's not the leader's role to wait. It's the leader's role to act. Here comes the role of loving care. And here's how that happens. In a given communication, in the old time orbit of the old we'll call it Neanderthal Hospital. The leaders in that kind of primitive thinking operate like this. They shout out orders because they're the boss. They tell you, do this, do that, and you do this and do that. And over time, if you operate in that environment, you're thinking to yourself, I've got some ideas. Well, you don't offer those ideas because the boss won't like it. We got to make the boss look good. What happens to your energy in that kind of environment where all you do is wait for the order, write it down, and execute it? You begin to wonder at some point, what is the difference between you and a robot? Now, let's say a patient calls to you, needs help, and they say, I want a glass of water, and boy, am I scared. Well, here's what an automaton does. The automaton hands the glass of water to the patient, but doesn't know what to do about the patient's expression of fear because that's not what automatons do. They don't know how to deal with that. So they ignore it, and the patient lies in bed, scared and suffering, when in fact a loving caregiver could have eased that anxiety and, by the way, brought the patient's blood pressure down, eased their heart rate, and helped them ease into sleep without flooding them with medication. So what happens in a loving environment? Patients get better care. How do you do that? You don't shout orders. You start by trusting the wisdom and the adulthood of your partners. The hardest example I've got to offer is going to sound very simple. And if you're in the Neanderthal old orbit leadership approach, of course it's simple. Here's the challenge. And if you've heard it before, listen to it this time again and see if you've gotten better at handling this kind of challenge. You're a leader in a hospital or in a hospice, and the word comes to you as the leader that staff members of yours are responding late to call lights from patients, responding late to the cry for help from patients, and when they arrive late, they say to the patient, well, I'm sorry, but... I'm sorry, but is never an apology. I'm sorry, but we're short-staffed. Okay, you're thinking to yourself the way loving care would approach this, which is get yourself into the patient's position, lying in bed, now because of the weight, maybe drenched in your own urine. As disgusting as that sounds, that's a daily experience for a lot of caregivers, taking care of people who've lost bladder control. So let's be blunt about that. You arrive, there's the frustrated patient, and the patient lying in bed hears you say, sorry, we're short-staffed. Now, part of the role of loving care is to reassure patients to communicate that they're in the right hands. If we tell the patients we're short-staffed, even if that's the truth, then what's their confidence level? They're thinking, golly, if you're short-staffed, I'm, I'm in the wrong place. 
I mean, now I'm really worried because there isn't enough staff to take care of me. So how do we handle that? Here's the old way of handling a problem like that. And this is what I dealt with directly in a hospital where I served as a consultant. The CEO says to me, I'm getting all these complaints from people who are complaining that nurses are telling them we're short-staffed. How do I stop that? And I said, how do you think? And he said, well, we put out the order, hear that, we put out the order that nurses are not allowed to tell patients we're short-staffed. And I said, how'd that work? And this leader, who happened to be a doctor, again, doctors are trained differently than leaders. He happened to be a doctor, and he said, we put out the order, we still got the complaints. And I guess what happened, listen to this one, I guess what happened is some nurses were going into the room and saying to the patient, I've been told not to tell you we're short-staffed, but we are. Well, so the nurses are sabotaging the order because they don't believe in it. They haven't got so-called buy-in to that. And they want patients to complain because they don't like that they're short-staffed. You see how it's getting tougher already? The old Neanderthal direct order you know, threat is not working. Here come the steps to the loving leadership approach to this. It takes a little longer, but it works. It lasts. I know it works. I know it lasts when you build this into the culture because I've done it as a CEO and I've seen it practiced by other leaders. When you adopt this approach, not only does the issue fade away, but it begins to help you solve all kinds of difficult conversations, not just this one, but the principles are the same. Okay, step one in the old approach, you give an order. Step two in the loving leadership approach, you offer an invitation. So you don't just target the individual that you may have heard is telling patients we're short-staffed. You say to a group of people, I'd like to invite you to a meeting in my office or in the boardroom or in a meeting room to help me solve a problem that we have. It's a challenge. So here comes, let's say, six or seven first-line caregivers into the meeting. What does the leader say? Because the caregivers are wondering, is this trouble? Did I just have to get summoned to the principal's office? Did I do something wrong? So the leader wants to ease that by engaging the best energy of the people in the room. How do you do that? You say, okay, I've invited you here because I need your help. Hmm, that sounded pretty good. I need your help. I need your wisdom. That's sounding even better. I need your experience, still sounding good, to assist us as a team in solving this issue. Okay, everybody, here's the issue. We've had this challenge in the hospital of actually being short-staffed, and some of the staff, and I understand this, some of the staff are telling patients that, that we're short-staffed. Now, what do we think about that? Let's say one of the caregivers raises their hand and says, well, you know, it's true, we are short-staffed, and I don't like that. And you as leader now say, right, we are short-staffed, that's the situation right now. Do we want to tell patients that? And another caregiver makes it tough on you by saying, well, why not? And then you say, okay, I understand it's the truth, but stay with me here. If I'm the patient or you're the patient or your mother is the patient, golly, you know, some humility here. What, what's the patient supposed to do about that? Do they feel better or worse? Now, if you're honest and you're the caregiver, you'd say, well, I guess they feel worse. Okay, so here's the challenge. Help us figure out what's a better way to handle that problem. Now, I'm going to jump all the way around to the solution at the other end and ask you to hear this simple three-part step and figure out how you bring your team to this point. Again, you're back lying in bed. What do you want to hear? What do you want to hear from the caregiver when she or he finally arrives? The apology. That's responsibility. 
we already had that. We had the apology, but we want a sincere apology. We don't want it to be, oh, sorry, here now. We want a sincere, genuine approach from the caregiver, not a tossed-off apology. So, number one, we would like the caregiver to say, gosh, I'm so sorry to be slow responding, or I'm so sorry it took me a while to get here. What's the second thing you want as a patient? Not what you want to say as the caregiver, but what's the second thing you want as a patient? Number two, compassion. I want to hear that caregiver say to me, that must have been difficult for you to wait like that. That's what I want to hear the nurse say because that shows me she's compassionate and she appreciates how tough this was. If she appreciates how tough this was, she's in touch with my feelings, with how frightened I am, and I'm glad that she can acknowledge that. So, number one, apology. Number two, compassion. That must have been difficult. Number three, I'm here now. This is your competence as a caregiver and as a leader. This is your competence that says, okay, I'm here now. I'm able to help you out, and I'm going to do everything I can. And then you do those things if you're the caregiver. I will tell you that I think you all got those three steps. There's one of them that about 60 or 70 percent of people forget after they've been trained. Leaders drop the ball on this one all the time, and it's been a surprising thing to me and to lots of people that this ball gets dropped on this one. It's the second thing. People kind of remember the apology, and they remember, I'm here now to help you out. And what do they forget? The compassion for the patient that says that must have been difficult. I keep going over it because if you actually go out and try to practice this with your team, as we do in our casework in the Healing Hospital Leadership Institute in our intensive, then you will notice that repetition and practice goes in a form like this. It's the idea, it's the action, and it's reflection. So we got the idea here. The bottom line is something like this. It's apology. It's compassion for what the patient went through. It's competence. I'm here. I'm acting. Responsibility and apology. Compassion and competence. Why do people forget that second step? Because they're thinking, the caregiver's thinking of their stress and anxiety, and their job is to think of the patients and to tell that patient flat out, boy, that must have been tough. So hold that thought as you practice your leadership and back up to how we get there. If that is the ideal outcome, this requires some discussion with the staff. You know where you want the outcome to be. How do you gain support from the staff? You invite them into a discussion. You listen to ideas. And the closer they get to that answer, the more encouraging you are because a key tool of the leader. It's not a hammer. It's not a scalpel. It's not a drug. It's affirmation. It's catching your staff doing it right. It's catching your staff and affirming them when they come closer to the answers we're seeking in a loving care environment. So as people say, well, you know, I'm already apologizing. What do you do? You say, good, great, excellent start. Now, what do we want to do after the apology? Hmm. People are kind of looking at the ceiling and say, well, okay. You say, let's think about what the patient's thinking. They're lying there in their own urine. What do they want you to understand? Now, at some point, a caregiver is going to say, ah, you know, I guess, I guess we want them to understand that we appreciate that that must have been difficult. We want to affirm the suffering. We want to honor it, to name it, and to notice it. And it only takes one sentence to do that. That must have been tough to wait. So, you see, you can deliver this three-step process with three sentences. I'm sorry. That must have been tough. I'm here now. I'm sorry. That must have been tough. I'm here now. I'm sorry. That must have been difficult for you. I'm here now. And the tone 
gets both tough-minded and tender-hearted. So you invite the team to these choices. I'm sorry, that must have been tough. I'm here now. And you make sure that they all like that idea. Then, time for action. They go out, they try it out, and we reflect. They go out, they try it out, and then they come back and we reflect, how's that going? Now, as you begin to experience success with this, this so-called simple little example, it gets affirmed and you begin to build this whole challenge around how you handle communications because I guarantee you that as you develop the right culture, you won't have to have as many of these conversations. People will start doing it the right way, the loving care way. Patient experience will go up and surprise, surprise, the caregiver experience will go up Last of all, biggest surprise, the leader's job will actually get easier and more meaningful and more fun. So go out, nurture that idea, encourage the action, engage the reflection. That turns out to be as important as the fuel in a rocket to shoot it away from Earth's gravity and into space. This has been Rocket Science for Leaders, and I'm Erie Chapman, urging and encouraging all of you to live love, not fear. These leadership podcasts are sponsored by the Erie Chapman Foundation. Please visit our website. It's eriechapmanfoundation.net. When you go to the site, you'll find information there and a chance to contribute. Please do if you can. Help support Radical Loving Care.